As we open that word now, our scripture reading this morning is from 2 Timothy uh, chapter 2 on page 1181 in your pew Bibles, where we'll read just verses 1 through 7, our third sermon in a series through uh, Paul's last will and testament book of 2 Timothy, the last book that he writes as his death approaches. Here, as his death approaches, we see his concern that even as he dies, the gospel would not, but would continue to go forth. Second Timothy chapter 2, read verses 1 through 7. The apostle says, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses... In trust to faithful men, will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Congregation, if you can think back two weeks to when we looked at the last half of of chapter one, there Paul called Timothy and us to suffer for the gospel, to not be ashamed, but to embrace the call to suffering witness. You remember, he he spoke of how he himself was in chains. He said, this is why I suffer for the gospel as I do, and yet spoke also of how, how many had deserted him. Even as he called Timothy and us to share in suffering, even identifying with God's suffering servant in chains, he reminded us that there were many who had deserted that cause. And yet there were others like Onesiphorus who came and refreshed him, who shared in his suffering, which he calls Timothy also to do and by implication calls us to do. And so now as we come into chapter 2, having just heard that call, he, he begins now to clarify what that suffering witness will look like. What exactly is he calling Timothy and us to do? Yes, to suffer, but doing what? I'm here, Paul clarifies the mission that is given to the church and to every gospel minister, and especially to Timothy, on the eve of the death of that great apostle to the Gentiles. The task is the transmission of the gospel to future generations. That as Paul has already made clear, that task is going to involve God's people in suffering. There's, there's going to be a cost. But God himself will provide us with everything needed along the way. In 2 Timothy 2, verses 1 to 7, we see, first of all, the task that's given to the church. And second, we see what it will cost. But then we also see the gracious provision of our God who was promised to be with us to the end of the age. Let's let us be reminded this morning of the unfinished task entrusted to the church, the cost 
of engaging in it in the gracious provision of our God who is with us along the way. And first, the task, which very simply is the, the spread of the gospel. Paul says, entrust to faithful men what you have heard from me so that they can teach it to others. And so the task goes beyond just, just entrusting the gospel to faithful men, but the goal of doing that is that they might teach it to others. As Paul is in his prison cell awaiting his death, he, he wants to be sure that the gospel outlives him. As we'll sing at the end of our service from Psalm 22, that a people yet unborn will hear it. And so he says, Timothy, take what you have heard from me and pass it on to faithful men who will teach others also. So that a generation yet unborn can hear the gospel. That's Paul's burden. The task he's entrusting to Timothy and to the church who's hearing this is to transmit the gospel from one generation to the next. I don't believe I've I've mentioned this yet, but throughout this epistle, there there are several indicators that that when Paul is writing this, he's he's looking beyond Timothy to, to the rest of the church in Ephesus and to all of the churches who will read this as his letters circulate. The first indicator is is in Paul's introduction. Back in 1 verse 1, in his, his defense of his apostleship, or the very beginning of this letter, he, he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of life. Now, now if you think about it, he wouldn't need to have written that if this was just for his son in the faith, Timothy, who knew Paul well, who, who had already received one letter from Paul, And he knew very well of Paul's apostleship. But Paul is writing this at the very outset of his letter for the sake of those who may question his apostleship. Or for the sake of those who may question Timothy. And then if you fast forward all the way to the end of the letter, in chapter 4, verse 22, Paul ends his letter by saying, The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. That word for you, in, in, at the very end, grace be with you, in, in the Greek, that word is in the plural. And so while on the one hand he is speaking to Timothy in the singular, the Lord be with your spirit, he's also speaking beyond him to the whole church of Ephesus in the plural. Grace be with all of you, he says. And so this, this very personal letter that he's written to Timothy is not just for Timothy, but it's for the whole church in Ephesus for the others who will read it as all of Paul's letters circulate amongst the churches and therefore it's for us also. And so the task that that, that Timothy is given to entrust the gospel to faithful men so they can teach it to others is a task not just given to him but given to each generation. Entrust the gospel to faithful men that they too might teach it to others. And as we think about that task, I think it's helpful to to sort of break this down into a few parts. I'm starting first with what Paul says in verse 2. He says, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses. And so there is a body of doctrine that Timothy is to pass on. Paul is obviously not saying here, Timothy, I want you to memorize or, or go back and transcribe everything that you've ever heard me say. 
but rather he's looking for Timothy to summarize the basic contents of the gospel that Paul preached publicly, and the presence of many, and then to pass that on to others. Remember back in chapter 1, verse 13, Paul said, follow the pattern of sound words. 1 verse 14, he said, guard the good deposit. And so it's that pattern of sound words, it's that good gospel deposit that Timothy and and the church are now to pass on to others. One of the, the very basic points here that we need to appreciate is that doing what Paul calls Timothy and the church here to do requires the the summarization of the essential elements of the gospel. In order to pass on the good deposit, since it's not as simple as as Timothy going around and just handing people a, a cassette or an MP3 and saying, here, listen to this recording of everything Paul ever said, since, since that's not possible, it's necessary to summarize Paul's teaching and then pass that on. It's necessary to encapsulate the essence of the faith in a form of sound words. And Paul actually gives us several examples of, of what this looks like. That uh, famous resurrection chapter in 1 Corinthians 15. You remember what he said at the very beginning of it? He said of the church in Corinth, I delivered to you what is of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and he was raised again on the third day according to the scriptures. Or back in 1 Timothy, you think of those trustworthy sayings that Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners, 1 Timothy 1.15. So often, Paul is giving these summary statements of of the essential elements of the gospel. 1 Timothy 3, verse 16. He says, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. And then he gives this sort of creed-like statement that that many commentators think uh, existed before Paul, that, that this was a common saying among the church. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by the angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. Paul calls that the mystery of godliness that we confess. There are these summary statements of the gospel that that he loves to give, that the church apparently had the habit of confessing. Even right here in 2 Timothy, back in in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 1, Paul summarized how God saved us, not because of our works, but because of his grace in Christ before the ages began. Or next week, in in verses 11 to 13 of chapter 2, he'll summarize it again with another creed-like statement. If we have died with him, we will live with him. If we endure with him, we will reign with him. Paul, in, in doing this over and over again, is showing us this is part of what it looks like to pass on the pattern of sound words. Being able to summarize the essential elements of the gospel so that it's clear what's being passed on. And these brief confessional statements, these these brief creed-like statements that that Paul so often gives and that the church already was in the habit of of confessing, they anticipate what the church will do in its first few centuries in in developing the the creeds that it does or or the catechisms with with which we instruct our children. How else do do we summarize and pass on the essential elements while guarding against error? 
Paul's command instructs the church in summarizing a pattern of sound words. The first thing we need to be clear on if we're going to transmit the gospel is what is the gospel? Because you understand, it's not as simple as just saying we believe the Bible. Roman Catholics say that too. Jehovah's Witness, Mormons say that too. In addition to believing the Bible, we need to be able to summarize what it is that the Bible teaches and and guard against erroneous understandings of what the Bible teaches. The first thing that we need to be clear on if we're going to transmit the gospel is what is the gospel. That's the creeds and, and confessions, summary statements that Paul gives do. They summarize for us what we must believe. And so as we think about this gospel labor that Paul calls Timothy and us to, one of the things that we don't want to overlook is that guarding and passing on the contents of the faith requires that we be clear on what the contents of the faith are. And that's what creeds and confessions help us to do, lest we become like Israel in the time of the judges or, or much of the modern church today where each man does what is right in his own eyes. Protecting and transmitting the gospel means not doing that. And then second, as we seek to, to respond to God's inspired word by, by formulating summary statements of it in response to what God has said, doing that by way of creeds and, and confessions, second, we then pass those on to faithful men. Notice when Paul says guard the good deposit, that, that doesn't mean hide it away like we're sometimes guilty of doing, but, but guard it as in protect its contents and then give it away to those who will likewise treasure it and teach it to others. What Paul is here saying about transmitting the gospel from one generation to the next is crucial. And what he says here is something that I think our our revivalistic age has maybe sometimes missed more than just dropping in to share the gospel in mass and then moving on. What's needed for the gospel to take root are ecclesiastical structures where faithful men will be able to water the seeds that have been planted and then continue to make and mature disciples. Paul is here thinking of how local pastors and elders need to be raised up so that they can do what he is not able to do. So the second part of of the transmission of the gospel beyond just being able to summarize its basic elements in in creed-like statements is then to entrust that good deposit to others. To faithful men, Paul says which means that the church is obligated to be involved in making disciples, in raising up young men through mentoring and and teaching so that they might take the reins when a Timothy or a Paul passes off the scene. Teaching our, our children like Lois and Eunice apparently had done with Timothy. The church needs to be always concerned with the transmission of the gospel to the next generation which can only be done by training those who will be around to teach that generation. The gospel is only going to be transmitted to the next generation if we train those who will be around to teach that next generation. And so the church must make a point to to not only teach our our children, but, but to identify and train future pastors and elders. 
Part of our task and the transmission of the gospel is to identify and train men who will be faithful in guarding and then giving away that gospel. To be engaging in training future office bearers. To be identifying and urging competent men to study it for the ministry, as our church order says. To be supporting the theological schools who train men for the ministry, as Lord's Day 38 says. Church must be in the business of doing this. Even as we think about foreign missions, one of, of the ways that we must be supporting that is, is, is in praying for and even uh, sending over men who would train gospel preachers in places where they don't have access to, to a theological education. Think of, of things like ITEM and other organizations that, that send over pastors so that they would give of their time to, to teach those men who would lead the church there. These are the things that the church needs to be busy in doing. Raising up faithful men to carry the gospel to another generation through the faithful proclamation of it from the pulpit and raising up men to guard that faithful proclamation by the elders. We need to be training men to do this. That's why we have seminaries. That's why we have office bear training events. That's why we have Saturday morning men's book studies to, to equip men to understand and guard and to teach the gospel. But as he also says, faithful men. In other words, we're not just to give this task to anyone who is willing but are to make sure that the men that, that we put up for elder or the men that we send off to seminary and then lay our hands on to ordain are faithful men. Faithful in terms of their commitment to the, the pattern of sound words and their ability to teach it, but also faithful in terms of their character. Not being like those of whom Paul will speak in verses 14 to 17 of a craving for controversy. Proud men. But rather, men who are able, as he said back in chapter 1, to guard the good deposit with a spirit of love and self-control. Men who meet the moral qualifications of 1 Timothy chapter 3, who are gentle and, and sober-minded and sexually faithful, who manage their household well. For Paul says, how else will they care for the flock of God? Paul desires that the men who would oversee God's flock be godly men. And so the church needs to make sure that they are not laying hands on men hastily, as Paul says in 1 Timothy 5.22, failing to do due diligence to make sure that the men we're setting apart for office or, or the men we're, we're sending into the pulpit are faithful men, both in terms of their theological commitments and their godly walk. We need to be thorough in doing this. 2 Timothy 2.2 demands it. It demands that we guard the gospel. It demands that we entrust it to faithful men. And all of this to the end, that they would likewise be able to teach it to others. That is, is the grand aim and goal in all of this, the propagation or, or furtherance of the gospel. That's the task that Paul gives to Timothy and to us to teach the gospel of Christ that he has already summarized in, in 1 verses 9 and 10 that God saved us not because of works done by us but because of his own purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ before the ages began and has now been manifest the appearing of Christ to abolish death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. That's the good deposit. 
That's the good news, and our task is to guard that good deposit, to guard that good news, and then pass it on to those who would preach it to others in every generation until Christ returns. That's the church's task. A task that Paul makes clear in verse 3 will not be easy. But passing on the gospel to faithful men who will teach it to others, Paul says, will involve suffering. He says in verse 3, share in suffering as a good soldier. In fact, even before this, he's already suggested it's going to involve suffering because even in verse 1, his encouragement to be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus implies that this task is going to be difficult. There will be those who oppose him. That there will be those of whom Paul has already warned in Acts chapter 20. And the church in Ephesus, who will be like wolves, who will come into the flock, will not want to follow the pattern of sound words. He's already warned him. There will be those who are set apart to guard it, but then abandon it and need to be disciplined. Or there will be those, because of their character, not fit for office, but but the church may want to put them in or keep them in anyway, and you're going to be opposed. Timothy, you're going to have to do hard things. You may pour into young men, mentoring them, and then they'll leave. You may take a stand on on biblical faithfulness, and people won't like it. You you may preach the gospel, and people won't like it. That's why, as Paul calls Timothy to transmit the gospel, the very next words are share in suffering flowing directly out of his call to spread the gospel of a suffering Savior is the certainty of the suffering of those who proclaim it. One pastor, Lewis Allen, said, Endure suffering is the motto of apostolic ministry. It's not going to be easy. As we said last time, because God is pleased to proclaim the message of the cross, not only on the lips of his servants, but by their lives. And so Paul encourages Timothy and and gives him three images, three illustrations for how he might think about his suffering for the gospel. He points him to a soldier, to an athlete, and to a farmer. Verse 3, he says, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. And he goes on in verse 4 to say, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Here Paul reminds us that the Christian life and gospel ministry in particular is a battle. If you've ever um, watched any, any war movies, you, you understand soldiers suffer. They get wounded They have to deny themselves. Um, Sometimes they they feel lonely. And so for the Christian and and so for the pastor and church leader, there will be necessary self-denial. There will be loneliness. There may be uh, relocating geographically for the sake of the kingdom. There there may be risks that, that you're called to take. Wounds that you may suffer from the enemy or even from friendly fire. Paul reminds Timothy with this image that the Christian life and the gospel ministry involve hardship. One of the hardships that that it causes is is the focus that it requires, which which leads to necessary self-denials. 
You see that in verse 4. He says, a soldier doesn't get entangled in civilian pursuits. For the Christian, and especially for those in church leadership and in gospel ministry, there may be things that you are not able to give the time and attention to that you would like. Or even things that if you were to give the kind, that, that kind of time and attention to, they would undermine your ministry. Whether that's the hours on social media, whether it's the hobby that keeps you from the main thing, whether it's the hobby horse that distracts you from the gospel. Paul here calls Timothy and all gospel ministers, indeed every Christian to some degree, to a single-minded focus and willingness to deny oneself and share in suffering for the gospel. He reminds us again, as the Psalms so often do, that we are engaged in a battle. As we sometimes sing with our children, that we are in the Lord's army. That's the first illustration that he gives of a soldier who must share in suffering. And then the next illustration that he uses is that of an athlete. Some of you know what it is to train for sports. Uh, to likewise, because of a goal that you have, that you've, you've set your mind on attaining to, to have to give up certain things. That's what Paul is calling Timothy and us here to do, to set our minds on the goal of the crown that he speaks of in verse 5 and compete according to the rules. Obviously, in the, the Greek games of which Paul speaks or in our context, in hockey or, or in soccer or whatever sport it is that you like, there, there are certain rules that an athlete must follow. Paul's calling us here not, not to cheat, not to take shortcuts. In our, our modern day, think of things like, like performance-enhancing supplements, ways that, that people try to, to get around the hard work of, of the necessary blood, sweat, and tears to, to skate through easy. To cheat and not play by the rules. Paul is here saying, no, gaining the victor's crown requires work. It requires toil. It requires suffering. And that's the same rule he's saying in the Christian life and in gospel ministry, that no one enters into the kingdom except through tribulation. Paul says that explicitly in Acts 14.22. He'll say something very similar in 2 Timothy 3.12. The Christian life in general and the gospel ministry in particular are a call to take up your cross and follow Christ. That's the rule. That's the analogy. Just as he says, the, the rule, or the, 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 the expectation in sports is that you must play according to the rules. He's saying that's the rule in the Christian life. And those who play by the rule will receive a crown. In both of these images, he is encouraging Timothy with the reminder that suffering leads to glory. As Jesus so often reminds his disciples, that the cross leads to a crown. Remember how he was, he was tempted not to play according to the rules. He was tempted by Satan to skip the necessary suffering to, to seize the crown. As he tells his disciples, you must not do that either. Reminds us that suffering leads to glory. The cross leads to a crown. And we see that same idea in the third image of a farmer. A farmer who must work hard now to later on have the first share in the crops. Um, some of you here are farmers or have, have been farmers, and so you know what it's like to work long hours. 
You know what it's like to work hard. You, you know what it's like to work hard with perhaps little glamour. So in the Christian life and so in the task that Paul entrusts to Timothy, there may be long hours, there may be setbacks, there may be difficulties, there may be little glamour, there may be tears. But as we sang earlier from Psalm 126, those who sow in tears will reap with shouts of joy. Although the Christian life and and service in the church come with difficulties, there is a harvest coming, and those who sow with bitter tears will reap with shouts of joy. That psalm, Psalm 126, is, is reminding us that we won't know until glory the fruit that comes from our gospel labor. That's true of parents. That's true of elders and of deacons. It's true of all of us. That now we may share in suffering, sowing tears like a hard-working farmer, but there is coming a day we'll enjoy the first fruits of the crops, we'll wear a crown, and the one who enlisted us will say, well done, my good and faithful servant, and we will share in his glory. All of these images are from suffering to glory, even as it was with Christ. Which is why, in the midst of all of this, Paul says in verse 1, to be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Because it's in looking to this same gospel that we seek to proclaim that we are reminded in the midst of our labor and in the midst of our suffering that Christ, the one we proclaim, has suffered but now been raised to glory. In fact, next week in verses 8 to 13, that's why Paul will say, remember Jesus Christ. The very next words after all of this in verse 8, remember Jesus Christ. Now, I've taken these as two separate sections, but really two verses 1 to 13 are are, are a unit. And so the way that that Timothy will be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, verse 1, is by remembering Christ and his pattern of suffering unto glory. That's what Paul will outline in verses 8 to 13, especially verses 11 and 12, where he says, if we have died with him, we will live with him. If we endure with him, that's the same word actually that he uses when he says endure suffering or share in suffering. If we do that, then we will reign with him. We'll wear the crown. And so as he charges Timothy and us to labor for the spread of the gospel, he tells us to remember Christ and be strengthened by his grace. In other words, he's saying the same gospel that you preach to others, preach it to yourself so that you're not surprised by suffering and so you don't lose hope while awaiting the crown and awaiting the harvest. But remind yourself in the midst of the ordinary sufferings of the Christian life, the ordinary sufferings of raising children, the difficulties of life in a world that rejects Christ, the the challenges of the eldership or or of entrusting the gospel to faithful men, the challenge of of discipleship. Remind yourself in the midst of all of that of Christ's pattern of suffering unto glory. That was the shape of Christ's mission on earth and that is the shape of the Christian life and Christian ministry, suffering now, glory later. Paul says, remember that and be inwardly strengthened by the grace of the gospel of our suffering, but now exalted Savior. Timothy, remember that when you're opposed. Remember that when you're scared. Remember that when you want to throw in the towel. 
This is what we mean when we speak of God's gracious provision for the task that he's given us. We may grow weary. We may grow faint. Paul has already anticipated that in 1 verse 6. He tells Timothy that we've not been given a spirit of of, of faint-heartedness, a spirit of fear, but God will give us the grace that we need to do the work that he's given us. John Stott, commenting on this verse, said Timothy was to find the resources for his ministry, not in his own nature, but in Christ's grace. It is not only for salvation that we are dependent on grace, 1 verse 9, but also for service. God is the one who makes up for all that we lack. He is the one who provides us with all that we need. As we confess in Lord's Day 52, even though we are so weak that we cannot stand on our own, even for a moment, and our sworn enemies, the devil, the world, and our own flesh, never stop attacking us. Nevertheless, the Lord upholds us and makes us strong by the power of his spirit so that we may not be defeated in this spiritual fight but firmly resist our enemies until we finally win the complete victory. That's what God in these verses is calling us to. To labor in guarding and and giving away the gospel, to entrust it to faithful men, to make disciples who make disciples and to persevere in whatever suffering that may involve, recognizing that just as a soldier who perseveres on the battlefield or the, the athlete who trains the crown, the farmer who labors and toils may suffer now, but will see a glorious end, so it is for us. And so Paul says... At the very end in verse 7, think over what I say. Meditate on it. Give yourself, Timothy, to the hard work of, of reflection. Pray over it and God will strengthen you with the grace that you need to endure suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. God in this passage is calling us to labor in the task that he's given his church and to share in suffering, but to do so strengthened by the grace that comes to us, according to verse 1 and verse 7, by reflecting on the words and the gospel of his Son. Again, that's why we need to hear this good news every week, to strengthen and equip us to then go with that good news to the ends of the earth and to the end of the age. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Amen. Father in heaven, you give this task to your church, a task that is yet unfinished, that drives us to our knees. Lord, we recognize our weakness, and so as we think of Paul and Timothy and the many who have gone before us, we pray with the the old missionary hymn, O Father who sustained them, O Spirit who inspired Savior whose love constrained them to toil with zeal untired, from cowardice defend us, from lethargy awake, forth on thine errand send us to labor for thy sake. Amen.